I want to just tell you how fired up I am today. We're, we're in the middle of this David series, right? A man who chased after the heart of God. Last week, Dr. Troy Temple brought us a incredible message and out of chapter 16. And before that, uh, Jonathan just set up this whole series for us on, uh, on this next like eight weeks that we're dealing with the life of David. So many incredible lessons that we learned from his incredible life. And of course, he is the one person in all of Scripture of which God says he's a man after my own heart. Those are pretty big words coming from God himself. So we're talking about a man who really has a pure, genuine love and passion for the Lord. Of course, we have so many psalms that come from him, right? This is the one who wrote, oh Lord, oh Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. This is the one who brought us so many wonderful songs of which we still quote from Almost every week we're quoting from one of the words of David. This is a powerful man that God used in so many incredible ways. And I've been so excited because today we get to chapter 17, one of my all-time favorite chapters in all of Scripture and the most famous battle in all of history when it comes to one-on-one combat. Because today, folks, we're going to slay some giants. We're talking about David and Goliath. So you better get out your sling. Go ahead and go outside there and grab about five smooth stones because we're going to tear it up this morning. You ready? I said, are you ready? Are you ready? That's right. That's what I want to hear. We're going to let out some battle cries this morning, all right? So turn to chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Incredible chapter. It's a very long chapter, so I hope you've got till about 2 o'clock this afternoon because we're going to be here a while. I'm just kidding. See, now y'all didn't even laugh at that. I'm just playing with you. But, you know, Jonathan's in Israel, and while the cat's away, the mice will play. I'm just kidding. We, uh, we're so glad that they're in Israel, and Jonathan and Pastor Scott and a bunch of our team is over there with about 100 people, and they're having a great time. And today they're visiting uh, in the city of Jerusalem. So pray for their safety and pray that they get home safe and that uh, they have a wonderful time over there. So this chapter, the more I would read it, the more it kind of just sort of plays out like a, like a movie, you know? I mean, if there was ever a chapter in Scripture but that, that you could just build a movie around, this would be it. You know, you could almost imagine the trailer that happens before you get to the movie, you know, when you have those, those powerful, you know, sounds, and then you see this big, huge giant in the corner, you know, and then you hear another sound, and you see this little tiny red-headed freckle-faced shepherd boy, and you hear all the stuff and the music building and everything, you know, and then it's like one man. One kid, you know, that kind of thing. And it's got this whole movie trailer thing going on, right? And then the movie starts, and you start right there on the battlefield in verse 1 of chapter 17. It's 1020 B.C., and we're, we're looking at a Philistine army that's gathered in this valley called Elah. Now, the Philistines were seafaring people. They came from the island of Crete, and they're warriors. They're, they're, they're battle-tested warriors, and they want to take the kingdom of Israel. And so they are actually inside the kingdom now. They're about 20 miles inland in this little area near Soko, which belonged to the tribe of Judah way back in the book of Joshua. We remember when the people of Israel took over this promised land, right? Well, the tribe of Judah settled in this region, and now the Philistines have come 
into this region, and they are taking control, and they're making their way towards Bethlehem and Jerusalem. In fact, I've got a little map that we provided for you so you can see this area. Now, you see those two hillsides, and it says Saul's camp is over here. That's the northern side of the valley, and then the Philistine camp is on the southern side of the valley. That valley of Elah is about half foot in a, about a half foot wide, but there are sections of it that are only about a hundred yards wide, and it's one of those narrower sections that I believe that this, this battle takes place because everybody can clearly see each other and what's going on. So they're gathered at Soko in verse 1, which belongs to Judah, and then they're encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephestamim, and you can see a picture of all those things right there. Now verse 2, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle line against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on one side of the mountain, like I just told you, and the Israelites were standing on the other side of the valley with the valley between them. And it's about a 200 to 100 yard distance between them. So they can all clearly see what's going on. And there came out in verse 4, from the camp of the Philistines, a champion. Now that is a key word. Don't forget that word. Because that word doesn't necessarily mean a guy who beat everybody in battle. Instead, what that means is the man between two spaces or one in the middle. Remember that. Write it down in your Bible. Take a pen or pencil or lipstick or mascara. Write it down somewhere. The champion means the man between the two spaces or the one in the middle. He's the man controlling the space between both armies. There's some sort of music playing in the monitors. I'm not sure what's going on, but I hear keyboards going on in here. I'm fine with that, but if it's going to be that, let's make it movie music. You know what I'm saying? But uh, anyway, and his name is Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, a cubit is about 18 inches. A span is about nine inches. And so the Bible here is telling us that this giant is nine foot seven inches tall. Oh, I did a lot of study on giants this, this week. And I wish I could tell you as much as I learned. But basically, there's been a lot of giants in the past. The, the, the last one that we know was Andre the Giant, right? Big wrestler. Um, there was another guy named Robert Wadlow that died in 1940. He died at eight foot 11 inches tall. And he was still growing when he died at 27 years old. So this does happen. There are giants that have come throughout history started with the Nephilim. And so here's Goliath, uh, one of the descendants of those giants in the past. And he's there threatening the children. Now, I just want to remind you, the children of Israel. Now, I want to remind you here before we go any further that even though Goliath is huge, he didn't start off that way. He started off as a little baby like everybody else. In fact, that's kind of how most giants in our lives start off, isn't it? They don't start off big, they start off really small, and they become giants. Maybe it's a simple mole on your skin that became melanoma and a deadly dis disease of cancer. Maybe it was a lump somewhere on your body that later became a tumor. Or maybe if it's an addiction, it started with your first drink, or your first sniff, or your first pill. Or for those in an affair, it started with just your first glance. You see, all those things sort of start a little innocent, and then they become giants because they grow if we allow them to. And this giant is huge. He's got a helmet of bronze on his head, and he's armed with a coat of mail that weighed 126 pounds. He's wearing 100, almost 130 pounds of armor, and he's carrying weapons that are really big and heavy too. They said his spear was as thick as a weaver's beam, and the head of the spear weighed 600 
shekels of iron, which is the equivalent of 15 pounds. And his shield bearer went before him. So not only is he covered from head to toe in armor, he's got some joker that goes in front of him to protect him even more. And by the way, the word shield there is the Hebrew word. There's two words in Hebrew for shield. This means the big one. All right, the shield bearer is carrying a shield that's almost six feet tall alone. So the shield bearer is no small guy himself. And the Philistine in verse 10 comes out and defies the ranks of Israel. And he begins to curse their God and begins to curse the armies of Israel. And he says, give me a man that we might fight together. Now, this is a fairly common practice in ancient warfare where one warrior would fight against the other warrior. It would save a lot of money and a lot of lives. But the problem is, the deal is, if I win, you become our slaves, and if you win, we'll become your slaves. That's the deal that Goliath is proposing. The problem is, Goliath is about four feet taller than everybody else in Israel's army because the average size of an Israeli soldier at that time was five foot three. And he's nine foot seven. Whoa. He is literally almost as tall as the rim of a basketball hoop. He's every NBA coach's dream. And so the most sense it would make would be for Saul, the king, to be the one who goes to battle against this giant, right? Because Saul, the Bible says, stood head and shoulders above everybody else. Saul was over six feet tall, and he's the king. And at one point, he was a mighty warrior. But as you heard last week from Dr. Temple, there's something that's happened in the spirit of Saul. The Lord has left him. The presence of God has left him. And you know what else has left him at this point? His courage. And so the army of the Israelites in verse 11, the Bible says, were greatly dismayed. It means they literally lost their courage and were greatly afraid. Now, as all movies do, we're going to go from that scene over to another scene about 12 miles east to a little town called Bethlehem, where this young boy named David is growing up. He's the eighth son of an Ephrathite by the name of Jesse. I wish we had time to go through the whole history of Jesse because it's pretty cool because it goes all the way back to Rahab and the Battle of Jericho. And then she has a son named Boaz. Boaz has a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Now Jesse's got eight sons. And the youngest is David, and he's the forgotten one. You heard this story a couple weeks ago from Pastor Jonathan. Nobody even thinks about this kid because he's out in the fields keeping the sheep. He's the youngest of them all. Now, the three oldest of, of, of Jesse are at the war 12 miles west in, uh, in, 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 the, in the army serving Saul. So the first thing I want you to see about King David, well, not a king yet, uh, David, is that he's faithful in the mundane. He's faithful in the little stuff. He's just watching sheep, playing music in the palace for King Saul, like in chapter 16 says. He's just, he's just doing the simple little things, and he's being faithful in the mundane. And by the way, when we're faithful in the small things, God will trust us to be faithful in the big things, won't he? It's like having an offstage and an onstage life. You ever seen a production or a play? A lot of times you go to see a play and the stage production looks incredible, but you go backstage and it's just gross. There's no painting, there's, there's costumes everywhere. There's and a lot of us live our lives like that. Inside and behind the scenes, we're a mess. But out in front of everybody, everybody thinks everything's good. Man, that's not the way David lived his life and that's not the way we should live our lives. David was the real deal on stage and offstage. Let me give you a little word from my friend, Ike Reichert. You will never rise above in public that which you are in private with God. So be faithful in the little things. And that's exactly what David was. Now, let's go from Bethlehem and change scenes once again back to the battlefield. 
Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. Isn't that just like a giant? Every single day of your life, it's right there standing in the face. Every morning you wake up, and the first thing you think about is that giant that you're dealing with. Every night you go to bed, the last thing you think about before you close your eyes is that giant that you're dealing with. Well, that's exactly what's happening with the army of Israel. They are facing this giant. He's come out there every morning and every night for 40 days straight. That's, oh, that's 80 times, folks, that he stood in front of this army and taunted them. But there's a key phrase here that's happening right now, and you'll see it here in just a moment. And so... Jesse then tells his son David to go take some sandwiches and some cheese to his brothers and to his commanders and check on things in the battlefield. So now up to this point, David has lived this incredibly private life as a shepherd boy and he's playing a little music for the king because he also plays the harp, all right? I'm sure he probably got ridiculed at school for carrying a harp to school, you know, so he's kind of, he's, he's just constantly dealing with this stuff. His family ridicules him. Uh, he was ridiculed for all kinds of stuff. And here he is now being asked by his father to go to the battlefield to take some sandwiches to his brother. And so in his obedience, and because he's faithful in the mundane, that's exactly what he does. And so he gets to the battlefield in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 17, verse 22. He leaves his stuff with the baggage keeper and he begins to talk with some people. And he goes to find his brothers. And as he's talking to them in verse 23, this Goliath once again comes out of the ranks of the Philistines and begins to taunt the children of Israel again. But this is the first time David's encountered this guy. And all the men of Israel, verse 24, is when they saw them and they fled from him and they were, they were very much afraid. 40 days, morning and night, this has been happening. And sure enough, Goliath comes out and the men run away again. In fact, the Bible gives us a picture of them going back into the trenches. They're, they're terrified of this giant, and nobody wants to fight him. And so he's listening to David, I mean, listening to Goliath do these taunts. He's watching the army run away again. And so he begins to ask about him. And one of the guys stops and says to David, hey, by the way, have you seen this guy? We can't fight him. He's too big. But the king says, if somebody will kill him, he's going to make him rich. And his whole family's going to be exempt from taxes. And he's going to get his daughter as a wife. And David's like, run that by me again. So he goes by somebody else and he says the same thing. And he says, now tell me one more. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? But then he adds one thing. Listen. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. But then all of a sudden, his big brother gets a little angry about the whole situation. You know, he's probably just a little bitter that he got passed over as the future king of Israel in that private anointing session with Samuel in chapter 16. So then when, when, uh, when, when he's standing there and he's hearing David ask all these questions, he really gets a little ticked off. And he starts cutting down his brother, and he says, in, in verse 28, he says, you know, uh, why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption, and I know the evilness in your own heart. Now, isn't that interesting that his evil brother is declaring his brother who has a heart after God evil? Hmm. And he says, I know what you're here for. You came down to see this battle. Now, David's response here is incredibly kind, because if I'm David, I'm going to be like, what battle? I don't see any fighting around here. I see a bunch of sissies in a trench. 
I don't see a battle. But, but David's a lot, David's a man chasing after God's own heart. <laughs> and so he responds in a different way. But he does this, he says this, what have I done now? As if this has happened before. Was it not but a word? But other translations take that phrase, was it not but a word? And they translate it with these words. Is there not a cause? Hmm. His response here is incredible. He could have easily responded with a fight or a cut down of his own, but he's too focused on the real enemy. By the way, I see a whole lot of fighting between fellow believers on social media and everything else. The family of God fighting with each other. People are making a living these days just trying to find things wrong with other believers. Can I just remind you of something, folks? We are all on the same team. You may have different convictions about certain things, or you may differ theologically on certain issues, but folks, we're in a much bigger battle. We are battling a culture that is absolutely destroying our nation. So we're on the same side here. There's a much bigger enemy waiting at our doorstep. Is there not a greater cause that we need to focus our efforts together on, as in reaching the world for Christ? Verse 30, so David turns away from his brother and he speaks to another one and he asks him the same thing. And they tell him the same rewards are at stake here if you're just willing to kill this guy. Well, word gets to King Saul that he's inquiring about all this. And so King Saul sends for him and he ends up in the tent of King Saul. We're gonna get there in just a minute, but just a reminder, all of this is a good picture of David just simply being faithful in the mundane. But here's the other thing. David's also focused on the right things. See, it's a matter of perspective. David had a different perspective. The army of Israel saw a huge man that couldn't be beaten, and David saw a huge target that couldn't be missed. He saw some big bumbling oaf that was nothing more than a big mouth defying the name of the living God. You see, a proper perspective will empower your faith. Goliath was big, oh, but David knew that God is much bigger. Goliath was strong. But David knows that God is so much stronger. Your problem, folks, may seem impossible. Your giant may seem daunting and unbeatable, but we worship and we serve the God of the possible. With God, all things are possible. And David understood one key that the rest of the army, including Saul, had apparently forgotten. If God be for us, then who can be against us? Mm. So when the words of David's uh, were heard and he comes to Saul, Saul begins to question him and David says these words, O king, let no man's heart fail him because of him, that giant. Your servant will go and fight the Philistines. Y'all ever said anything that just came out of your mouth and after that you go, oh dear Lord, what did I just say? You ever have one of those moments? Yeah. I volunteered for a few things and I thought, Well, that's not a moment for David. He knows exactly what he's doing and he says it intentionally. And the first thing Saul says is, no man, you're, you're not experienced enough. This, this giant's been fighting since he was a youth and you're just a youth. At this point, David's between 17 and 19 years old. He's, a, he's still a teenager, but he's big enough and strong enough to have a little quickness and a little power. But he has no experience. And the next thing Saul tells him is that you got, you got no equipment. And so Saul begins to outfit him with his own armor, you know, and tries to get him to put this stuff on. But, but, but David is, is, it doesn't fit him. 
And David says, look, look, I know I don't have the equipment. I don't, I don't have the, 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 the experience, but listen, I've been a shepherd for my dad all these years. And, and when, she, when lions and, and bears would come after him, I would take them and I would kill them. And they would have their, uh, my sheep in their mouths and I would grab them by the beard and I'd take it my knife and I'd slay these giants and bears. Look, if I can do that, this giant's no bigger than a bear and he's certainly no powerful or faster than a lion. I can take this guy. And so Saul is finally convinced. And Saul goes, the Lord be with you. And I'm not sure if he meant the Lord be with you. I think he meant, oh dear God, we're in trouble. But he's got nobody else. And he certainly doesn't want to take this giant on. So David is focused on the right things, but also he's fine with just being himself. When he tries this armor on, it doesn't fit. It doesn't feel good. It's not right. And so he says, no, I can't, I can't do this. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to stick with my shepherd onesie. <laughs> and so that's what he does. And I just want to remind you, you can be fine with being you too, because God created you to be you. He didn't call you to be Billy Graham or Jerry Falwell. He has a plan for your life. We've all been given talents and abilities and personalities and a DNA that's unique to us alone. Listen, there's only one Jonathan Falwell. You're, you're who you're supposed to be. So how about you live your life for the glory of God because there's a greater cause here. Sometimes we get caught up in wishing we're something or somebody else. We wish we were more famous or more wealthier. Maybe we wish we're more talented. And every time I go on social media, I'm reminded of just how big of a loser I am because it seems like everybody else is doing something greater than me. But God has uniquely created you to be exactly who you are supposed to be. And he does have a plan and a purpose for you. So it's our job to simply grow close to him and, we can, and so we can hear his voice and, and his leading and go where he wants us to go and to do what he wants us to do. But in the process, just be you. Be authentic. Be real. Know your strengths and your weaknesses and be honest about both. Let me phrase it this way. In everything natural, be spiritual. And in everything spiritual, be natural. You may not feel like you have much power in your life to defeat the giants that are facing you, but all you have is all you need. David only had a sling and a staff. And he's perfectly fine with that because he knows that all he has is all he needs. He has confidence in who he is and what God has equipped him to do. So all of this, being faithful in the mundane, staying focused on the right things, being fine with himself while being close to God, it prepared him and made him fearless in the face of giants. Ooh, we're fixing to have a battle. Scene four in this movie, you can hear the music growing. Boom, 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 boom. You know, I just love that. Verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now, it's interesting to me that not one time at all in this entire story are we given the slightest hint that David is afraid or even nervous. He's got full confidence in the Lord and in his own skills. Fear is just not present in the heart of David. And it's because his faith has completely overshadowed his fear. 
And I think if fear was going to step in, this would have been the moment as he's gone down to that little creek and he knows that the entire army of the Israelites, the entire army of the Philistines, they're all watching him. All eyes are on him. And this is the moment where God is going to take this little private worshiper and throw him into the public eye for the rest of his life. And he's down there at that creek. And the Bible says, you don't even see in the Bible that he prayed. But I think if he did have a moment of prayer, it would have been as he was kneeling down to pick up one of those five smooth stones. I wonder if he didn't just say, wow, God, I'm going to need your help here. I wonder if it's that moment that he was thinking about when he wrote these words, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Mm. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. It was believed that he was a little red-headed kid. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? Apparently the Philistine had an English accent. <laughs> he said, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And Philistine said to David, Goliath says, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. And then in one of the all time great trash talking moments in history, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and I will give you the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the field, that all the earth may know that the Lord is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Woo! Goliath, Goliath was basically saying, come here so I can take you out. And David was saying, you know what? I'm not only going to take you out, I'm going to take out your whole army. <clears throat> I'm getting fired up here, man. Can you hear the music getting louder? And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And he throws that stone in his sling and he begins to just go like this. Huh? And the Bible says that the stone struck him in the forehead and it sank into his forehead, and Goliath fell to his face on the ground. Sometimes giants aren't nearly as strong as they seem. Goliath was slow, probably had a health condition that all giants have called acromegaly. Therefore, he can't see well, and he's weighed down by all this fancy armor. Listen, folks, you're going to face more than one giant in life, but you don't ever need to forget. Faith always overcomes fear. So never mind the risk, never mind the reward. The question is, are you living for a cause? 
Don't let fear make your decision for you. Let faith be what drives you. Your faith is your belief in God's ability. God's got this. And David at this moment is placing all of his trust in the Lord because he knows that with all of his training, all these battles and lions and bears and all the nights in the wilderness and all the practice with his sling and all that time in the private praise of the Lord, all of it is about to be on public display. And it was. And in that moment, all of his faith came to fruition. But it wasn't faith just alone. It was also the skills that he had developed. Do you know that in ancient warfare, there was three types of warriors. There was, and you can find all this information, by the way, in Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath. It's fantastic, you need to read it. But in this book, I learned from Malcolm Gladwell that there's three types of warriors. There's infantry, there's cavalry, and then there's archers and slingers. The infantry had an advantage over the cavalry because when these soldiers are on a horseback, they could hamstring the horses and injure the horses. The horses then fall on the cavalry guys that were cavalry that were riding the horses, and they had an advantage over them because they now maimed and injured because they fell off their horse, right? Well, the cavalry has an advantage over the archers and slingers because on horseback, they're moving too fast for them to get a good aim at them. But slingers and archers had an immense advantage over infantry because infantry was slow moving. And these slingers in ancient times were so good with their slings that they could sling a rock with this little weapon right here. And it it would go well over 200 yards, sometimes over 400 meters. And they could hit a coin from as far away as they could see it, a little tiny coin. They could drill it with a sling. And they were so accurate, the Bible says in Judges, that they were accurate within a hair's breadth, this small. And so these slings are not just accurate, but these slingers were also powerful. Did you know that they could sling a rock? And by the way, these weren't like little tiny, little. sometimes we think these little smooth rocks. No, no, the rocks that we're talking about that a slinger would sling were sometimes the size of a billiard ball. And they were big and they were heavy. And they could sling that rock at speeds of up to 50 meters a second. And when they would impact whoever they hit, it would literally have the same impact as a nine millimeter pistol. We're not talking about some little, uh, no, we're talking about a serious weapon that the Roman army and everybody else would use and they would do incredible damage. There are even stories of slingers taking off someone's head. This is a powerful, powerful weapon. And so basically what I'm saying is, not only did Goliath not have a chance, he was overmatched from the first second because Goliath brought a sword to a sling fight. David has the advantage, and David knows it. And at the moment he breaks out this sling, that entire Philistine army went, "Uh uh-oh. We didn't see this coming. Because everybody in both armies is thinking conventional warfare. They're thinking, well, this is how everybody should do it, right? He's going to go toe-to-toe with Goliath, and Goliath's way bigger, so Goliath's going to win. But that's not what David's thinking. David uses unconventional tactics to win this battle. And I just got to remind you, some of you maybe feel like you're facing a giant and a whole slew of them. You may be overmatched, outnumbered, or overpowered, but you got to come out swinging, not just with a sword, but maybe it's time to break out a sling every once in a while. Use some unconventional warfare like prayer and fasting, right? And remind yourselves every day that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You got to plug into the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So David prevails over this Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him in verse 50. And there was no sword in the hand of David. I always wonder what happened to the shield bearer. Did he just take off running, I guess? 
And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now there's a new champion in town. Finally, the victory scene. We go to the last scene in this movie and we see that the men of Israel chase after the army of Philistines and they begin to kill them along the way and chased him all the way back to Gath, which is Goliath's hometown, by the way. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and then they plundered their camp. And verse 54, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and he put his armor in his tent. So now David is walking away from that battle carrying the head of Goliath and dragging Goliath's armor and his shield and his sword with him. What a powerful picture. David's faithful in the mundane. He stayed focused on the right things. He was fine with who God has made him to be and he faced his giant head on, but now he firmly holds on to the trophies. You see, folks, the story of David and Goliath is really not about David defeating Goliath at all. It's about God defeating Goliath. And sometimes we need to just keep a few trophies to be reminded of that. It's amazing to me how the army of Israel, not one time, even in the midst of the most intense moment, ever just had anybody stand up and say, hey guys, remember the release of captivity in Egypt? Hey, do you remember the parting of the Red Sea? Hey, you remember the battle of Jericho? We're, we're serving the God, of the, a living God here. Maybe he'll protect us in this battle. No, not one time do you hear that. But David is a reminder of that. And it just makes me wonder, I wonder if Noah ever held on to at least one little beam from that boat I wonder if Rahab held on to that scarlet row, uh, uh, scarlet you know, cord from the window. I wonder if Samson kept that jawbone. Did Peter frame a fishnet? I wonder what kind of things these people held on to. But let me bring it a little closer. Maybe as Americans, we should head over to Bunker Hill and Gettysburg and Normandy and be reminded that through all of that, God has preserved this great nation. Maybe as a church, we should look back on the many lives that have been changed, like those two baptisms we witnessed today, and be constantly reminded of the victories of our past, and that God still wants to bring us more victories to come. But let me bring it home a little closer. How about every employee and student of Liberty University go by that graveside that stands over there behind that mansion every once in a while, and just be reminded of the vision and the purpose of this university, and all the miracles that God has brought us along the way. My buddy Todd, I want you to keep one of those chemo needles and frame it as a reminder that God brought you through cancer. Brett, I want you to keep that brace that's been on your arm for months now and stand it up in the corner of your room as a reminder that God heals and that you are an overcomer. Uh, that you are an overcomer. Nathan, I want you to keep an old belt tied around your bedpost as a reminder of how much healthier you are now. Adam, I want you to keep one of Hank's crutches as a remembrance of every obstacle you've overcome in this battle with your son. And friends, hold on to those photographs and memories of your loved ones suffering through a disease and be reminded that one way or another, God is going to bring a cure either in this life or the next. Look at these trophies, just like David did, as reminders of the goodness and the power of God. He put that shield and that armor right next to a bear's paw and a lion's paw. But let me bring it home a little closer. Just as David defeated the champion to become a champion, there is one who stands between the two armies. Can I just remind you this morning that at the cross, we find the greatest champion of all. His name is Jesus. The biggest Goliath of all is the force of darkness in this world and sin and Satan and immorality and crime and hate and addictions and all the junk. And Jesus, in one 
moment on the cross became the one who stands between, the one who controls the territory between good and evil. And in one moment, Jesus defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave for all of eternity. And since that moment, the only way to go from being lost and destined for hell is to being saved and destined for heaven is to surrender to the champion who stands between heaven and hell. And his name is King Jesus. He is the bridge between death and life. And besides his nail-scarred hands and the scars in his hands, uh, do you know what the trophy is that is a constant reminder of the victory of Jesus on the cross? You. You are a trophy of the grace of God. So stop looking at your Goliath. Then every once in a while, instead of telling God about the size of your problems, tell your problems about the size and the power of your God. Put your fear down and pick up your faith. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So let all the assembly know and remember that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle belongs to the Lord. You got to trust him. The battle belongs to the Lord. You got to believe in him. Say it with me. The battle belongs to the Lord. Can we give him praise today because he's worthy? Yes, he is. It is his battle. It is his victory. Stand with me. Let's celebrate the goodness and the grace of God. Yes. When I fight, I fight on my knees. With my hands lifted high, oh God. The battle belongs to you. And every fear I lay at your feet. I'll sing through the night. Whatever it is, folks, we worship a God who can handle it. I got pastors down here at the front. We got counselors all throughout the week. We are here for you. So if you need to come to this altar and just simply say this, man, I'm fighting a battle. I need your help. Maybe it's simply the battle of being lost and not having any direction or hope in your life. Listen, Jesus is the answer. We'll help you. So we're going to sing this chorus maybe one time a little softer. And as we sing it, I'm just going to remind you that the altar is open. But I'm also going to remind you this morning that if you don't come to the altar, it's all right. But if you're facing a battle, get in that quiet moment of solitude like David spent half his life in and speak to the Lord and ask him to speak to you. And I promise you, I promise you, he will if you seek him with all your heart. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. So. We're going to sing this chorus one more time, and then we're going to be dismissed. The altar is open. Anybody need to come? Now's your chance. Come on. So when I fight, fight on my knees, with my hands lifted high, oh God, the battle belongs to you, and every fear I lay at your feet.
we go today, I'm going to remind you, we didn't take an offering today. We're going to take the offering of the doors. So if you've got tithes and offering to give, we're so grateful that you do because that's how we keep the lights on. But it's also how we reach out to this community and around the world to, with the gospel. So make sure that you're able to leave your tithes and offerings at the door. We're also going to remind you today that VCS tickets go on sale next Sunday. Um, we will make them available to the public starting Monday morning, a week from tomorrow. So if you want to get your best seats for the VCS program happening the second week in December, it's a big, big show. Then, believe it or not, I know it's just late September, but the tickets are going to be available for Thomas Rotors only next Sunday in the lobby. All right? Hey, God bless you. Can I just tell you one more thing? Go fight your battles and face your giants and do it fearlessly because the battle is the Lord's. God bless you. Have a great day, all right? I want to thank you for joining with us today. If you've never come to the place of recognition of being a sinner and needing a Savior, you can do so right now. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Just ask Him to save you today. Now, if you'd like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of His Son, Jesus, we'd love to chat with you about that information. I would encourage you to email me at the address that is on the screen. It's pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Jesus Christ in your life. If you'd also like to help contribute to our ministry as we take this message of the gospel around the world, go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with the amazing message of God's love. Help us let people know that God loves them, that Christ died for them, and that we can find hope in Jesus.